seated. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to the reading of your holy scriptures, please open our hearts and our minds to receive your word without resistance. Holy Spirit, according to John 16, 13, I pray that you would guide us into all truth and glorify Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We're going to be looking at the Beatitudes this morning. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he, being Jesus, sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, mor- or, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, picture the scene. There's a great crowd surrounding Jesus. He has gone up on a mountain. In fact, Luke, in his account of this, tells us that there's a great multitude around Jesus. Why? Why was everyone following him? Matthew, in his gospel, tells us just previous to this in chapter 4, verse 17, that Jesus has just appeared on the scene, beginning his public ministry, and he's calling out, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Surely, a man who comes seemingly out of nowhere saying such thing is bound to get some people's attention. Matthew goes on to tell us in verses 18 through 22 that Jesus calls a band of disciples. Specifically, Peter and Andrew are fishing. Jesus calls them, says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they put down their nets and follow him. And I'm struck, even by the word immediately, that they left their profession just like that to follow Jesus. Again, who is this man? Matthew goes on to tell us in verses 23 through 25 that great crowds began following because Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching the gospel of the kingdom. And Matthew gives us insight into what it is specifically that Jesus is teaching. If you look at your Bibles, or for visual aid, feel free to look up here. If your Bibles have red in them, you see that what Jesus begins teaching is the content of the Sermon on the Mount. If you look up here, we have chapter 5 that begins in red, and then read throughout chapter 6, read throughout chapter 7. This is all the Sermon on the Mount. And if you follow to chapter 7, verse 28, it says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. 
So Jesus' teaching is astonishing, but not just that. Matthew tells us that he is healing, which is an astonishing way of demonstrating the power of the kingdom. So Matthew tells us that his fame continues to spread, and great crowds are following him. No wonder people are following him, right? Because Jesus is astonishing. He is amazing. But though Jesus is astonishing, not all were his disciples. What we have to understand is that in the crowd, there were people who would have been there because they were opportunistic. Jesus is healing people. Hey, they need to get healed. So they come and they follow him for that reason. We've got to figure that there might have been some in the crowd that were skeptics, distrusting the very things that they were seeing and the words that they were hearing. And also in the crowd would have been those that were just curious. They saw the hype and they were coming along for the ride. But if I can be frank for just a minute this morning, if you are not a disciple, in other words, if you are not following Jesus, because as we know in this in the gospel account that Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and we have a crowd gathered this morning here at Grace. And if you are not a disciple, I must tell you that Jesus is not okay with you staying on the fringe of his community. Jesus wasn't about gathering crowds. He was about building disciples. The Beatitudes for us are a celebration, for they are pronouncing the kind of blessing that belongs to those who are in the kingdom. And yet, the Beatitudes are also an invitation to the crowds to enter into the blessed life that Jesus and only Jesus can provide. So the Sermon on the Mount begins with the disciples gathered at his feet and the crowds listening <clears throat> excuse me, and the crowds listening in. Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, and so we must ask the question, what is this list? And what are we to do with it? As we look at the Beatitudes, there are eight of them. If you count the times that Jesus said blessed, you will actually find nine. But I want to say that the uh, ninth one that you will find is actually a continuation from the, uh, the one previous to that, dealing with persecution. So actually there are eight Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes come, it's, comes from the Latin word meaning blessedness or happiness. The question is, is this a list to des- uh, designed to provide the greatest amount of guilt in the fewest possible verses? I would say no, that was definitely not Jesus' intention. We must recognize first and foremost that they are a description of Jesus our King. Jesus perfectly embodied the Beatitudes. And secondly, we must understand that the more that we grow to become like our Lord and Savior, the more we will embody these Beatitudes. They are a description of the heart of a disciple under the gracious rule of our King. They are a description of the character qualities of the kingdom of all those within his kingdom that are called to serve him. Okay, this all sounds great, but here's my tension this morning. As I look at these Beatitudes, they don't, I would say, accurately describe the character of my heart. I would say the closest that I actually become is probably the fourth Beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, as long as we don't say for righteousness, because I hunger and thirst often. But the reality is that if we are a true follower of Christ, this list should not bring hopelessness nor despair, but rather it's a vision of what the Lord intends to 
uh, to produce in our life through his grace and by the ongoing work and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not hard to miss the fact that the Beatitudes are counterculture and also counterintuitive. We, we could say that uh, Hollywood probably will not be making a movie anytime soon of one that embodies the Beatitudes. Jesus' idea of blessed, or we could say happy, is different than our idea of blessed and happy. It's not hard to figure that out. If we look at verse 4, if we substitute happy for blessed, we would say happy are those who mourn. Or in verse 10, happy are those who are persecuted. Doesn't necessarily follow our, our thinking on what happiness is all about. But Jesus, is blessed, um, but Jesus speaks of blessedness or happiness in terms of godly character. We often thinks of, think of happiness in terms of our subjective feelings. Oh, I feel happy. But Jesus is making an objective judgment about people, not what they feel like, but rather what God thinks of them. Jesus is concerned that we care more about what God thinks of us rather than what others think of us. But often we, th- we seek blessedness through many things other than Christ-like character. We've been going over the Sermon on the Mount in my, Sunday, my college Sunday school class, and recently I asked the class to fill in the blank. I started out loud with the question, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, and I let them yell out some answers, and here's the list they came up with. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for beauty, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, knowledge, politics, spirituality, success, health and wealth, entertainment, the American dream, and here's my personal favorite. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for everything with an open mind. But lest we get uh, or too quickly mock and judge the culture around us, we must recognize that we enter into the same foolishness, that we also buy into the same lies, which will always lead to disappointment. We forget or neglect the reality that beauty fades, that toys do become dull, and at the end of the day, the only thing we are truly left with is our character before God. The world, the flesh, and the devil tempt us to believe that that blessedness comes from the outside in. In other words, if we gather in all these external things that we look to, that we put our hope in, that we get excited about, our hope is from outside in that they will fill us and satisfy our hearts. But Jesus' message is different. Jesus says that blessedness comes from the inside out, that it comes from character Godly character that radiates out and affects the way that we serve God and the way that we love others. Where did Jesus begin with the training of his disciples? He begins in the Beatitudes with their character. So isn't that where we should begin as well? Let's look at the Beatitudes. In, in, uh, in particular, the first three Beatitudes that we're going to be looking at describe our weakness or our neediness before God. We could call them Beatitudes of Need. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're not talking about financial poverty, nor are we talking about a depressive personality. That's not what it means to be poor in spirit. It's not personality that Jesus is going after. It's character. By way of, uh, by way of illustration, I'll explain what poor in spirit is not. 
there's a fairly sophisticated scale that I use from time to time to diagnose people's personality temperaments. I'd call it the 100-acre woods scale. Familiar with the 100-acre woods? You know, Winnie the Pooh and the whole gang? There are only so many categories that a personality can actually fall into. You have your tiggers. They're the ones that are socially bouncing around everywhere. Everyone they meet is a friend. And tiggers actually love the fact that they're tiggers. You also have your rabbits. And I would diagnose them as control freaks with anal retentive tendencies. <laughs> then there's your piglet types. Multiphobic personalities. Very timid, very shy. Then there's Pooh. He's just a silly old bear. That was a cheap one. And finally, Eeyore. He has a melancholy personality, teetering on depression, probably an introvert, though I'm not saying that introversion's a bad thing. But here's my point with this scale. Is Eeyore poor in spirit? The answer is no. That that is not the way in which Jesus speaks of the Beatitudes. It's not an issue of personality, but it's an issue of character. Personality stays fairly constant. In other words, once an Eeyore, always an Eeyore. But character changes. Character develops with the choices that we make. Being poor in spirit means knowing that we are before a holy God. It's understanding the depth of our sin and our need for God's cleansing. It's an understanding that our only hope is in the gospel. A pastor once approached his congregation. His name was Jack Miller. And in front of his congregation, he said these words, Cheer up. You are far more sinful and flawed than you could ever dare imagine. Yet, you are more dearly loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope because Jesus Christ lived and died in your place. It's a wonderful articulation of the gospel, but it's also an articulation of what it means to be poor in spirit. The more we understand how sinful and flawed we are, and yet, because of Christ, because he lived and died in our place, how truly loved and accepted we are, the more it frees us up to love our families, our friends, our co-workers, those around us. Why is this? Because when I'm sinned against, for instance, a couple weeks ago, we're having our staff meeting here at Grace. I slip out real quick to grab a cup of, co- cup of coffee. On the way back, they've locked me out of the doors. The gospel reminds me in that moment that I'm also a sinner saved by grace. And this frees me up to love those other sinners. That's what the gospel does. One who is poor in spirit relies upon God as their only hope, not upon their family name, their nationality, their temperament, looks, ability, position, money, intelligence, morality, education, or anything else. They can claim with the psalmist from Psalm 4017, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. If you are poor in spirit, there is a promise that yours is the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And if you're poor in spirit, you'll mourn. You'll mourn your sin, which leads to the next beatitude. Verse 5. Excuse me, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Again, Jesus isn't talking about a sentimental personality with overactive tear ducts. Jesus is talking about righteous character which mourns sin. It mourns our personal sin. It's a character that mourns the sins of the brothers and sisters within our church, that mourns the sin of society, and in particular, the indifference to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Lamenting with Psalm 119, 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. The poor in spirit mourn sins. They do not excuse it, belittle our sin, or even ignore sin. In fact, a great measure of spiritual growth is not so much that we stop sinning, but it's the reality of the, that when we sin, the quicker we are to go to God to confess. It's a great sign of spiritual maturity. And Jesus tells us that the one who mourns shall be comforted. How are we comforted? How can we understand this? I would suggest this morning that there are at least three ways to understand this. One is that we're comforted through the blood of Christ. He has washed away the guilt of our sin. The Bible gives us various pictures for this. One is he has taken our sins and he has hurled them into the depths of the sea. Another picture is he takes our sins and he hides them behind his back. Another picture is as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. So we no longer stand guilty before God because of who stands in our place, our elder brother Jesus, who stands before God representing us on, uh, on his behalf. That's the first way that we can be comforted. The second way is in the continual work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, convicting us of a sin, cleansing us, guiding us towards righteousness. It's growth in Christ-likeness. I'm comforted by the fact that as the Holy Spirit is at work in my life, I am continually growing and maturing in Christ. Not nearly fast enough for my wife and my children and others around me, but we are comforted by the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. And the third way that we are comforted, that is, there will be a day of perfect cleansing. If you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 24, excuse me, how about Revelation chapter 21, since there is no 24? Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. This is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. I'll start in verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, be, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. What a great picture of how comforting it is to know that we do more now for all sorts of reasons, but total comfort is coming. Poverty of spirit, as we saw in the first beatitude, and mourning of our sin in the second beatitude lead us to the third beatitude, and that is, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, not personality. We're not talking about somebody who's nice or people pleaser or conflict avoider. Rather, meekness is a true, humble view of oneself. It's opposite of prideful self-absertion 
at the same time, we must recognize there's nothing wrong with assertiveness for the right reasons. Meekness is compatible with great strength and authority and power. If you watch the movie Spider-Man, you'll remember the scene where the uncle turns to Peter Parker. And by the way, I'll ruin it for you if you haven't seen the movie. Peter Parker is Spider-Man. The uncle turns to Peter Parker and he says to him, with great power comes great responsibility. The truly meek person understands this. I'm not suggesting that Spider-Man is biblically meek. I'm not going there. But, but it's, rel- it's rather the truth that with great power comes great responsibility towards others. Our strength, our power, authority is not to be asserted for our own good, but for the good of others. Think of Jesus, how he asserted his power, his strength in the temple when he drove out the money changers. And why? Because it was offensive to God and because it was keeping the, Jew, uh, the Gentiles from worshiping at the temple. If you could turn to Matthew chapter 11, just a few chapters over. Matthew chapter 11 and and 28 says this about, or Jesus is saying these words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, and in the Greek word, in the Greek, that word is praos, gentle, could be translated as I am meek and lowly in heart, or that could be translated as humble. For you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we hear, see Jesus as meek and humble, yet powerful, lays a gentle, easy yoke on his people. Jesus says that the meek, the promise that he gives in this beatitude is that they shall inherit the earth. What's this about? If you could quickly turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And in fact, because Bill's been this long enough, if you just hold your Bibles and just let it fall, it should fall open to Hebrews chapter 11. This is, this chapter is the hall of faith. It's looking at the great saints of old. And here's what it says about them. In verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city." It's a great picture. He has prepared for them a city. He has prepared for the meek a city. And we find this city again. We just read a portion of this from Revelation 21. The new heavens and the new earth. The the earth that we inherit will be new. And although we don't have time to go into this right now, I do recommend for later today reading even Revelations 21 and 22. It's a beautiful picture of what we are to inherit. So if you are poor in spirit, the first beatitude, and you mourn your sin, the second beatitude, and are meek, a humble view of yourself, the third beatitude, this leads us to the fourth beatitude, which is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. 
Verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. One way of looking at the Beatitudes is to see this Beatitude as the center of all of them. That the first three lead into this Beatitude. And the rest of the Beatitudes that we're going to go on to see after the fourth one flows out of this one. This Beatitude declares that God is the one who satisfies our need for righteousness. How are we to understand this? There's a couple critical things that we have to understand about righteousness. First of all, that God provides the righteousness for us through Christ. As a sinner, when we come to Christ acknowledging our need for a Savior, He saves us immediately. And the Holy Spirit immediately enters into our life. This is the theological term for this we'd call the doctrine of justification. We are, at this moment, declared completely righteous as we stand before God. And we have now the very power of God in our lives, which enables us to live righteously through the Holy Spirit, delivering us from the power of sin and the power of pollution in our lives. This is the doctrine of sanctification. So, to understand these, because of Christ's righteousness, we can say that at this very same moment that we are perfectly righteous in Christ because we're justified. God sees us as righteous. And yet, we are growing in our righteousness. And this is sanctification. And this beatitude calls us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. But it's easy to crave things other than righteousness. It's easy to crave things that we think that will satisfy apart from Christ. Recently, I was in a coffee shop and I was actually studying this very beatitude when I overheard a conversation next to me, some men sitting around a table doing business. And one of them was telling the other men that he could hardly sleep the night before because he was so excited about the business deal that they were doing and how much money it was probably going to bring into him. What keeps you up at night? What do you hunger and thirst for? What do you crave? If you hunger and thirst for the blessings that the world offers you, and the blessings are many, money, upward mobility, sensuality, pleasures of all sorts, reputation, and the list goes on. If you hunger and thirst for those blessings, chances are you'll find them, but in the process you'll hinder your own righteousness and thus you will never truly be satisfied the way Christ offers. And yet we know that if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, this means this will hinder the unrighteous pleasures that the world offers. But God will honor us and bless us with true satisfaction, not only in this life, but also in the one to come. Jesus desires that we cry out with the psalmist of 42, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And Jesus' response is that in John 6.35, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Our actions indicate whether or not we truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness puts themselves in the way of getting it. Namely, through worship through the study of God's word, Bible studies and such, through fellowship with others, through prayer. 
God satisfies our desire for righteousness. And when he does, we change. The next three Beatitudes we're going to find that flow out of hunger and thirsting for righteousness. The next three Beatitudes are Beatitudes of action. Verse 7, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. When we know our poverty, when we see our weakness and our sin, we can also be free to see the weakness and sin of others in a different light. Are you quick to forgive? Are you quick to show mercy? Oh, it's a difficult thing at times to actually extend forgiveness to others. Uh, I want to tell a story of, uh, that I think is a profound story of actually granting forgiveness in a difficult situation. It's a story of Corey Ten Boom. She and her family were sent by the Nazis to an extermination camp during the latter years of World War II. They suffered horrible cruelty and deprivation, and only Corey Ten Boom was survived out of her family. After the war, she became a celebrated author and speaker. And at one point, a few years after the war, she, after the war, she was in Germany speaking on the topic of God's forgiveness. After the service, she saw a man walking up to her, and immediately she recognized him as one of the guards in the extermination camp of which she and her family uh, were sentenced to. But he didn't recognize her. He came up to her, and he thrust out his hand, and he said to her, a fine message. It's so great to know that our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And Corey, at that moment, could not even bring herself to lift her hand to shake his hand. She was thinking back to the time in the eastern, uh, to the camp. She was thinking back to the leather whip that he carried, to the, ho- the horrible, cruel things that happened within that time. She was thinking back to the fact that her family died in there. But he went on to say, this guard did, that he had become a Christian and that he knows that God has forgiven him for all the cruel things he did there. But he wanted to know, will she forgive him? She said, as he asked that and reached out his hand once again, it seemed like hours. That was probably just seconds for her to make this decision. Does she shake his hand as a symbol of forgiveness and truly mean it, knowing what it cost her? But she says that she recognized her own forgiveness, that the Lord had showed her forgiveness and mercy, and therefore she was going to trust in him. So she prayed, Jesus, help me. And she put out her hand, and she shook his hand. And she says in that moment she felt power radiating, starting from her shoulder, going down her arm to her hands. And at that moment, the prisoner and the guard are there together, shaking hands. And she said she had never felt the Lord's love so intensely as that moment. I think this illustrates for us the reality of the power of forgiveness in the sense that it may be hard at times to forgive. Mercy is not easy. But when we understand the extent of the mercy that God lavished on us, we are able to freely give it to others. Think about it. God sent his son to rescue us out of our suffering and our rebellion. And think of the mercy of Christ who healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind, sat with sinners, gave mercy to prostitutes. He fed crowds. He even raised a widow's son from the dead. And we are called to show mercy 
and demonstrate the mercy of Christ to the, wor- to the watching world. Being merciful is the natural result of receiving Christ and experiencing the grace of God. And if we aren't showing mercy, the question is, do we truly have an understanding of the mercy and the forgiveness that's been shown to us? The one who mourns sin and seeks righteousness will lead to the next beatitude, which is pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. One who is pure in heart is one who is undivided. Their focus is on Christ. It is not one who has a foot in the kingdom of heaven and the other foot in the world, seeking pleasure here but blessing there. The one who is pure in heart is focused on Christ. What does it mean, as Jesus goes on in this beatitude to say, the pure in heart shall see God? It's difficult to say completely everything that Jesus meant by this, but I think we can see that partially we see God here and now. We see him in creation. We see him in history. We see him in the faith and the stories of our very lives of redemption. And yet there's a future aspect to this, that in heaven we will see him face to face. Do you realize that we are being prepared to see our king face to face? Are you excited of the thought of seeing Jesus face to face? This reminds me of a story I once heard. There was a president of Moody Bible who later became a pastor. And uh, he was a pastor in Chicago. And at one time he visited a ministry called the Shepherd's Home for Children. This was a ministry that take care of children with Down syndrome. As this pastor, Joseph, was walking around the place with the director, the director was telling them all about the ministry and what they do, how they teach, how they teach their children about Jesus, and in particular, that one day Jesus will return to make them whole and to heal them. Then the director turned to Joseph and he asked them, do you have any idea what our biggest maintenance issue is? And of course, Joseph says, no, I have no idea. What is it? And the director proceeds to tell him that the dirty windows on the east side of the building, because these children every day press their face and their hands up against this window, looking for Jesus and asking if today is the day that he's going to return to make them whole again, to heal them. The pure in heart are blessed with the promise that they shall see God, and it is a promise we can hold to. In Matthew 5, 9, our next beatitude, Jesus tells us, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A peacemaker is not simply one who is afraid of conflict, but rather passionate about people being at peace with God. If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, Second Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This passage, or the Beatitude, goes on to say that we are called, those who are peacemakers should be called sons of God. And the reason for this is, as we seek to enter into the ministry of reconciliation that God has called us into, we resemble our Heavenly Father, who also made peace. We are with our lives, with the words that we say, and the actions of our lives, are to spread peace. The last beatitude that we're going to look at is found in verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Is it alarming that this is one of the Beatitudes? That we're blessed if we're persecuted? But Jesus told us that indeed, if we live a life honored to him, that we can expect persecution. And if our king was tested, opposed, rejected, crucified, shouldn't we expect that we would be involved in such a heroic, stug- in such a heroic struggle? Remember that we, indeed we do follow a crucified Lord. Those in the world who admire Jesus do so from a distance, but the closer they get to him, unless their hearts are changed, the more they'll hate him. And that is why the world seeks to do one of two things with Jesus, either submit to him or silence him. So we should not be surprised when we are persecuted. But Jesus tells us in this beatitude that if you are persecuted, rejoice, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Again, that's a promise. Now recall, through all these beatitudes, Jesus spoke them to a vast crowd. And to his disciples, they are a cause for celebration. Because blessed are you who will inherit the kingdom of God with all its pleasures for eternity. But also they contain an invitation to the crowd, to those who are on the fringes of his community. They're an invitation to enter into the blessed life that Jesus offers. Now the last word on this. If, as we've looked at these Beatitudes, you're looking at this list and you're feeling that you are far from the character that Jesus pronounces here, do you know where that leads you? It leads you back to the first Beatitude. Blessed are the, uh, are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's where we need to be, back understanding Daily, our need for the gospel, our need for God's grace, more and more in our lives. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for your beatitudes. Thank you that in you is blessedness. And I pray that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Lord, would you show us that you and only you satisfy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now please stand for the benediction. The congregational response is, I hunger and thirst for righteousness. Amen. Now, here this is God's benediction. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through.
May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And all God's people said, I hunger and thirst for righteousness. Amen.